I'm glad that you got me in with the right categories. The young men service tonight, and I feel like that's appropriate. There were a couple guys, they were wearing robe-type things, and they were holding signs by the side of the road that said, the end is near. And this couple that was driving by, looking at them, holding these signs, saying the end is near, they looked over and they said, religious fanatics. These people, they're just on the side of the road, they hold these signs talking about the end of the world, they never get it right, I don't know. And about that time, they have gone up over the hill and they go right off the cliff because the bridge is out. The guys holding the signs in the robe say, you think we might need to change our sign to bridge is out instead of end is near? You know, lots of times we don't like really to think about judgment. In fact, we did a little research on how often people talk about hell and about judgment from God. And what you will find out is in about the last 20 years, hell is one of the least talked about subjects from pulpits across America of any subject in the Bible. Now, there are reasons for that. At Apologetics Press, we deal with unbelievers. We deal with skeptics and atheists and agnostics and people who say that there is no God, etc. And there's one very famous skeptic by the name of Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell wrote an essay titled, Why I'm Not a Christian. And he was talking about the personality of Jesus, and he had lots of good things to say about the personality of Jesus. He said, but there's one reason I could never believe that Jesus is God's Son or never follow Jesus. He says, because Jesus taught about hell. And he said, any person that tries to use fear to get someone to do something is a person that I can't respect and I can't follow. And so he said, all the good stuff about Jesus that there is, he was one of the people who talked about hell the very most and I just simply couldn't believe in him because of that. I have a quote from a pastor, and I'll put that in quotes, lady in New York City, and she was asked by an interviewer, a reporter for a newspaper, would she ever discuss hell from her pulpit? And she said, oh, no, no, no. She said, I would never bring that type of subject up. She said, my parishioners, the people who are in my pews, just would not handle that well. They would not think that's something that needed to be preached on, and that's just something I would never discuss. Now, I, I don't know about you. don't know when the last time you heard a sermon on the judgment of God and hell was. But that's what you're going to get tonight. And I'm going to tell you why you're going to get that tonight, because it was assigned to me, and the assignment was Jesus' teaching on the judgment. Now, it just so happens that of all the people in the New Testament, Jesus spoke about hell more than any other person in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus is one of the most outspoken preachers on judgment in all of the New Testament. The word hell, it's the Greek word Gehenna. It is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament, 11 times of those, Jesus Christ himself is the one talking about hell. Now, here is what you need to understand about the spiritual world before we go any further. 
Lots of times I think that we think that the physical world has some realities and some absolutes, but the spiritual world is just kind of ah, here or there. If God wants to, he can adjust it. He can kind of change it. Here's what actually is the case. There are spiritual realities that do not and cannot and will not change. And if you happen to find yourself on the wrong side of a spiritual reality, you will suffer the same spiritual consequences that you would if you find yourself on the wrong side of a physical reality. Now, we understand that really easy. Now, let me explain to you what I mean. Somebody comes up to you and says, hey, it's a great idea to get in a bathtub with a plugged-in hairdryer in it. You say, no, that's not a good idea. In fact, I will die if that happens. They say, no, 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 you won't die. People might have told you that you would die, but you won't. In fact, what it does, it just warms up the water. It gives it kind of a bubbly feel. Actually, it gets you a little current going in there to energize your muscles. It's really a really good idea. Now, it's a terrible idea for any person in here listening. You will die if there is a plugged-in hairdryer in your bathtub. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter whether you like it or not. It doesn't matter whether the most educated person in the world has told you differently. If you step into a bathtub with a hairdryer plugged in, you'll die. Doesn't matter if the person who owns the bathtub really likes you. Doesn't matter if there's a book that says it won't happen. You will. It's a physical reality. Now, I'm going to tell you a spiritual reality that you need to get real comfortable with whether you like it or not. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, if you'll turn your Bibles there, here's what you're going to read in that passage from the New King James translation. It says that Jesus Christ is coming with His holy angels in flaming fire to take vengeance on those who know not God and who obey not the gospel. Now, here's something else you learn about God. He can't lie. If the Bible is written by God and God cannot lie, and you listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, and it says that Jesus Christ is coming with His holy angels in flaming fire to take vengeance on those who know not God and obey not the gospel, what is Jesus Christ going to do? He's coming to take vengeance on those who know not God and obey not the gospel. It does not matter what that person thinks is going to happen. It doesn't matter what that person's been told is going to happen from somebody they really respect. If you have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ comes back before you do, the Bible explains He's coming to take vengeance on you in flaming fire. Now you need to understand that. Now we're going to get to some, some hope at the end of this lesson. But first you need to see the judgment. I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. I want you to look in verse, oh, I think it's about verse 48. Matthew chapter 10, verse 48, 28 rather. Most people have misunderstood this verse for a large part of their lives. I did for years until I one day stopped and thought for a second and realized, hold on just a second, I've misunderstood that verse for years. That's not what it's saying at all. I want you to listen. Start in verse 27. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetop. This is Matthew 10. Look at verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him 
who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, I grew up thinking that that was talking about Satan. That you need to be afraid of Satan because he can destroy both your soul and your body in hell and that you don't need to fear just the people that can hurt just your body. And that's all. No, that's not talking about Satan. Satan has no power whatsoever to destroy your body in hell. In fact, as you read about hell and what it ultimately is, hell is a place that God prepared for Satan and his angels and then really incidentally any humans that happen to follow Satan and his angels. Satan is not in charge of hell. If you have ever seen those little cartoons where there is a red guy with horns that is about half cute and he's got a little arrow pointed tail and he has somebody that's about to be assigned down to hell and he decides what room they go in, that is ridiculous. That is not Bible. Satan, if he had the authority or power to throw you into hell, he would be doing that right now. The Bible teaches that Satan is on this earth and he is walking about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, according to 1 Peter chapter 5. Satan hates you and wishes, he wishes he had the power to send you to hell, but he does not. Who is this talking about? Satan's going to be in hell. He's not in charge of hell. He's got no authority in hell. He's getting cast into hell just like every other disobedient being. Who is this verse talking about? God. It's talking about the only being who has the authority to throw you into hell. God. But now, you don't have to take my word for that necessarily, although that's exactly what the text is saying. Uh, let's go over just a few verses to Matthew chapter 11. Jesus made this statement several times. We're just going to use Matthew chapter 11 as an example of the statement that he made, but he made this several times on several different occasions to several different people, and it sounds similar to this about every time. Let's start right there, and let's just look at verse 20. And he has preached the gospel in all of these towns and villages. You'll recall that he traveled around and preached to all the different villages. And then he starts going back through them in verse 20. Then he began to upbraid the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Now, you know, lots of times we get a picture of Jesus. And he would just walk into a city. And he would just talk real quiet because he's so meek. And he'd never raise his voice. And if there was a little bird that came by, he would catch it on his finger and put it on his shoulder. And it would be a bluebird singing to him. And he was just so... Okay, that is not the picture that the Bible paints of Jesus. Now, Jesus was a kind, loving individual, but Jesus would go into a temple and flip tables over that had money on them and scatter people with the will. Jesus had a righteous anger to him that was a physical reflection of what the God of the Old Testament had to the Israelites. And when the Jews were talking about Jesus and talking about the God of the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, me and the Father are one. You talking about Jesus, the same God who sent fire and brimstone down on Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed the entire cities? You talking about, I thought Jesus was, a, was a, a being of love. Oh, he is. But the same God from the Old Testament 
is the God of the flesh in the New Testament. And when you read about how God handled unpenitent sin, you see that God sends a flood on a world and kills approximately 2 billion people because every thought of every person was only evil continually. You see that he sent fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. You see that he killed 24,000 people in the Israelite camp because they were grumbling and complaining. Jesus is that God. Me and the Father are one. Now, he goes back to these cities and upbraids them. You know what upbraids means? Now, I don't know if it's this forceful, but it's real close. When you see a coach who has told a player to bunt, and that player goes up and swings for the fence, and it's a championship game, and this is the last out, and he gets out. How do you envision that coach treating that player? Maybe next time you'll listen to me. I needed you to bunt. We'll try again next year. Hey, good, good job, guys. Good job. Okay, no, I'm just not seeing that. Upbraiding is a very serious and angry dissatisfaction at behavior. Okay? Jesus goes to these cities, and he just went through and preached to them all, but most of the people in the cities did not believe him at all. They just thought, oh, wow, neat guy, he heals people. But they didn't listen to him, then they start following him. So he comes through and he's upbraiding them. He is probably really very forcefully saying, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Oh, just by the way, Tyre, Ezekiel predicted that Tyre would get washed clean like a rock, scraped clean like a rock. The entire city of Tyre was, not a little pun there, the entire city of Tyre was demolished, scraped clean, and dumped in the water. There was nothing left of it. Jesus said, I'll tell you what, Chorazin and Bethsaida, Tyre has been dumped in the ocean. And if I had done the same miracles in Tyre that I did in you guys, Tyre would still be standing this day. And you watched me do them, and you didn't do anything about it. So he says, but I say to you, it will be more tolerable for, for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. You remember Moses talking to God and begging God not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And God said, ultimately after the bartering went back and forth, God eventually said, okay, if I find ten righteous people in Sodom, I won't destroy them. Ten. You remember the sin that the Bible presents Sodom being guilty of and that's why Sodom was destroyed? The two angels go into the city of Sodom and the men there want to sexually abuse them? And so the next day, God rains literally fire and brimstone from heaven and burns them, wipes the entire four cities off the face of the globe. And Jesus said, oh, you guys know the Old Testament story, don't you? Let me tell you what, when I came and preached to you and you didn't listen to me, it's going to be, what city do you think the Jewish mind would have thought would have the worst judgment possible at the end of time? Sodom. 
And Jesus said, no, 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 you're missing it. If you thought Sodom was bad, just wait till you get what you deserve for not listening to the Son of God. And he went over and over through all these cities saying that very same thing. Now, let's see some specifics about eternity. I want you to turn your Bibles, and I want you to look at Mark chapter 9. We're going to get some specifics about the judgment of God, as taught by Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Why don't you look at verse 42? It's probably a, I don't know, memorable to you. You should have seen this before and have thought about it. It's a very vivid word picture that Jesus presents. This is hard to forget. Here's what he says there in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would have been better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown down into the sea. And I want you to think about that picture. You know what a millstone was? Millstone is a big, humongous rock about the size of a wagon wheel. It is designed to crush grain into flour. He said, you know what? If you cause other people to sin, it'd be better for you if there was a huge millstone that you just had, you'd probably need a chain because most ropes wouldn't hold them. And if it was just tied around your neck and you were just dumped off into the sea, that'd be better for you than what's going to happen. Because here's what's going to happen. Now, you just stop right there before you go any further. How many of you have ever thought that your life would end with a stone around your neck and you being thrown into the ocean? I mean, that's the stuff you see on like Scarface and The Godfather, and mafia movies. That doesn't happen to people. Except Jesus is saying, you know, if you cause these little ones to sin, it'd be better for you if that did happen, because let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to wish that did, because here's what's actually going to happen. Read with me. And if your hand makes you sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than having two hands to go to hell. Now, I don't know what your translation says right there. Mine's New King James, hell. Some of yours might say Gehenna. Now, I want you to read the description of Gehenna. Where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. The first thing I want you to see about the judgment that Jesus Christ in the flesh is one of the most outspoken preachers of is that it's going to be a place of torment, and fire and destruction. In many places, you will read where he said there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now let me give you the description as I understand this verse to be teaching it. Gehenna is a Greek translation of the term Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. Now, here's why Gehenna came to be associated with the eternal, everlasting, end-of-time destruction. Because when you go back and read about Josiah, the Israelites had become so wicked and vile, they had done exactly what God told them not to do. They had started worshiping idols, exactly like the Israelites were instructed not to do by Moses, but the people in Canaan around them were doing. And one of the things that Moses had said... He said, you shall not make your sons and daughters pass through the fire to Molech. Oh, but they were. In fact, there was a place in the valley of the son of Hinnom called Tophet, that you will read about, T-O-P-H-E-T. 
Tophet was a translated word that means beating a drum. And here's what would happen. They would literally burn their children in a sacrifice to this god of Molech. If I understand it right, they had a big, huge, something like a bronze statue of this god. It was hollow. They would fill it with combustible materials, coal or something else like that, and they would heat it up to where it would be literally glowing orange. And the altar was its hands outstretched, and there would be drums on either side that would be beating as the parents would walk down this way to place their child onto the hands of the glowing orange statue of Moloch. Now you can see why God sent the children of Israel in to begin with to wipe out the Canaanites because they were commonly practicing this stuff. And then when you start reading about Manasseh, you realize he and all of Israel begin to do this as, as well. So Josiah, who comes in to wipe out idolatry in Israel, demolishes everything in the valley of the son of Hinnom, Tophet. And he burns priest bones down there, the vile priest of the idols, and he ruins the whole valley so that it can never be used for anything good again, and it becomes a place of dumping waste and refuse. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. Nobody messes with the valley of the son of Hinnom. Nobody does anything productive in it. If you have any garbage, you take it out to the valley of the sons of Hinnom, to Gehenna. As I understand it, they would drag their garbage out to the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. But now what kind of garbage do they have? They don't have plastic bags. It's not like they're throwing their plastic water bottles out. What are you dragging to the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom? Uh, oh, three or four days ago, my air went out in my... Uh, actually, about a week ago, my air went out in my camera. I, a deer hit me. I did not hit the deer. I was driving, and the deer just said, Poof, right into my side. So the deer hits me. And the next day or two, my air goes out. So I'm driving to Kentucky, thinking my air's fine. I got a three, three and a half hour drive. About one hour into it, my air goes out. And I have changed the name of my car. I was calling it the Silver Bullet. Now I call it the Furnace because that's about what it feels like. But here's what I found. It's very interesting. The last two days, I've been driving up and down the roads with my windows down. You don't appreciate how many animals die on the road until you drive with your windows down? If you drive with your windows up and you have the air conditioner going, there is no recognition of when you drive by a dead armadillo on the side of the road. If you don't see it, you don't know it's dead. If your windows are down, you don't even have to see it. There is for about, a, it's about a five to ten second window when you drive past a dead animal. The stench comes into your car. And you think, another dead one. I bet I drove through three on the way up here. And there's, there's no getting around the smell. Now, if there is an animal that dies in first century Palestine and you don't want it to rot in the street, what do you do with it? Drag it to the Valley of Sons of Hinnom. Any type of... You ever smelled a, a rotten tomato? It, I, don't, I don't know what it is about tomatoes. But rotten tomatoes are about the most disgusting, rotten vegetable that I know. And here's, the, here's when I hate getting a rotten tomato. You'll see a tomato. I've got tomato vines growing right now, and you'll see one that it just looks perfect. Did this last night, I think. Looks perfect. It's red. Looks like it. I mean, you're talking, if you were to 
think you're going to buy this in the vine right. Okay, you go to grab the tomato, right? Well, you didn't see the bottom of it totally right out. Your finger goes... <laughs> it, I haven't found a soap yet that really gets rotten tomato off your hand, not immediately. I mean, it wears off eventually after three or four weeks, but, it, I mean, it's there. You got some rotten vegetables that you don't want stinking up your house? What do you do with them? Throw them in the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. You take all your disgusting garbage that is going to cause a stench or a problem in your city, and you dump it in the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, and probably there was a lot of sewage and various different things that went into that valley. Now, if you're the city of Jerusalem, and you got a place where there's all kinds of garbage, what's the best place you know, the best thing you know to do to clean it up? Well, just burn it. And so, if at all possible, you would just set fires out there and try to burn it all up so it didn't stink up the whole place. So if I understand it right, you could always go to the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom and there was a fire that was burning almost all the time and there were dead carcasses and disgusting putrefaction that was going all the time and at any given time you could walk into the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom and you could kick something over and there would be maggots crawling all in where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What do you think he's talking about? What kind of worm is he discussing? Yeah, you're talking about a place that is always disgustingly vile and burns all the time and there are maggots everywhere and that is your destination for eternity. Oh, now, hold on. Who, who's talking about this? Jesus. In fact, Jesus said more about hell than any person in the New Testament. Now, let me ask you this question. If there is a hell, is that a loving thing to do? Ah, see, when Bertrand Russell accuses Jesus of trying to, to frighten people into obedience, he doesn't understand the reality of the spiritual world. If there is a spiritual reality of torment, then what's the most loving thing that you can do? The other day I heard a quote I thought was genius. To be unclear is to be unkind. What would be the worst thing you could do if there really is a hell? Don't tell anybody about it. Don't try to put a sign that says the end is near. Bridge out. Don't inform people what's going to happen because they'll just go right on to the end of that road and they'll go right off the bridge because, hey, you don't want to hurt their feelings. Let me tell you the story that I have that goes along with that. There's a guy by the name of Penn Jillette. He does an HBO program called Penn and Teller. It's named a bad word. And so, wouldn't even repeat it. But it's a program that supposedly shows problems with belief systems. And what I mean by that is uh, magicians. They will go and show how the magicians do their tricks. And they called our offices at Apologetics Press to see if Eric Lyons would go on and talk to them about Bible contradictions because they are well-known atheists. And Eric asked them a couple questions. He said, well, would you edit my responses? And they said, yeah, we'll probably edit your responses. He said, would I get to see the end product before it went out? 
And they said, no, no, you wouldn't get to do anything. He said, okay, no, I'm not doing that. But this guy, Pendulette, known atheist, he has a, a video. It's about a five-minute video. And you can see he's really, really sincerely touched by this guy that he met after one of his shows. He comes down from doing one of his shows, and the name of the show is a bad one. Comes down from doing one of his shows. It's a live audience, and they're in the audience. And this guy comes up to him, he says, shakes his hand, looks him right in the eye, and says, hey, I know you're an atheist. But he hands him a Bible. And he says, my name is right here on the inside cover of this Bible. And he says, I know you're an atheist, but I'll tell you what. This Bible has made a difference in my life. And I think it will change you too if you read it. If you have any questions about it, call me. Now, Pendulette is telling about this. And he said, look, this guy wasn't crazy. He was kind. He was sincere. said he was trying to proselytize me. Meaning he was trying to convert me. He said, and here's what he said. An atheist making this statement. He said, and... If he really believes what the New Testament teaches, that's exactly what you would expect him to do. He was showing he loved me by trying to convert me, and that's the loving response. He said, now, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in God. He said, but if I was ever to, to start to explore it, it would be because of a person like this. Here was what he understood. If there really is a hell and you really did love people, what would you be trying to do? Well, Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. You want to know why Jesus talked about hell so much? Because Jesus of all people wanted the people in this world to understand there really is one. And did you listen to the verse that was read to us tonight? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How long I have wanted to take you like a mother hen would take her chicks under her wings, but you would not. Jesus Christ preached about hell more than any New Testament writer or speaker because he loved people enough to tell them about the spiritual reality. It's going to be painful where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. Now let me show you one other aspect of it. Once you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. This aspect is the easiest to talk about and it's the hardest to understand of any aspect, I think, in the Bible. One of the, one of the most difficult concepts to get your mind around. You might recall Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. Jesus Christ talking about the judgment. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then he will sit down on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as sheep, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Judgment seen. Jesus, at the very end of time, will be sitting on his throne of, you know what the Bible describes it as, a throne of? Judgment. The book of Revelation talks about Jesus 
having a sword that goes out of his mouth. You know what that sword that goes out of his mouth is? The word of God that judges all the nations. He's going to divide the sheep from the goats. Sheep he's going to have on his right hand. It's going to be a very, very small group, comparably speaking, to the left hand. In fact, if you were to try to envision it, it would I don't even know how you would even envision the minority of people that are going to be in the sheep group. Jesus Christ said, Enter by the narrow gate, for broad is the gate, wide is the way that leads to destruction. And many there are who go in by it, but narrow is the way, and difficult is the narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. I mean, you're talking about what a ratio of one to a hundred thousand, maybe. I don't know. And he's going to say to those sheep on his right hand, Well done, enter into the kingdom of your heavenly Father. And they're going to say, Why? You can say, because I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was sick and in prison. You came and visited me. I didn't have clothes. You gave me clothes. And they're going to say, Lord. I mean, they're looking at him in all his glory on the judgment seat. And they're going to say, we, we, don't, we never saw you while we were on earth. And then he's going to say, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then to those goats on his left hand, he's going to say, depart from me, you cursed from my father. And he's going to tell them why. Because I was hungry, you didn't give me any food. I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. I didn't have clothes. You didn't give me any. I was sick and in prison. You didn't come visit me. And they're going to say, when? We're looking at you in your judgment on your royal throne of judgment. We don't remember seeing you on earth. He said, when you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. Now, here's what I want you to understand from this passage. I want you to read verse 46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. Now, the fact is that New King James right there where it says one everlasting, the other eternal, it should have translated the words the same. Because it's, that, it's the exact same word. Eternal punishment, eternal life. Now here's what you need to know. There are a lot of people, in fact, some very famous people in the Lord's church today, who will tell you that hell is not eternal. That a loving God could never send one of His creations to hell forever. That it will be a brief or maybe even kind of a lengthy time of punishment, but it will not last forever. Here's what you need to understand. The length of judgment will be just as long as the length of life. They're both described as eternal. So if being in heaven with God is going to last forever then being in hell will also last forever. It's that word forever. Eternal. Never stops. Time is time's not there anymore. There's no clicking time watch. It, it's just not there. It goes and goes and goes and goes. You don't spend eternity. It's never spent. It's never done up. There's never less of it than there was to start out with. You know, there have been all kinds of illustrations. You can pick which one, any one you want. Think about a dove that theoretically could fly from the earth to the moon. And that dove comes down and picks up one piece of grain from one sand on a beach in the United States of America and flies 240,000 miles to the moon and deposits, deposits that one piece of sand. And then you think about that dove flying back and picking up another piece of sand. 
and you think about that dove flying back and picking up another piece of sand, and you think about how long it would take if a dove could do it to fly to the moon and carry one piece of sand at a time, and you start that dove on the east coast of the United States, and every single beach, he picks up one piece of sand, and he takes it to the moon. When he has finished with every grain of sand in the world, not just in the United States, I'm talking about beaches across the entire globe. And then that dove starts picking up the sand off of the moon and bringing it back. The first second of eternity has not even been spent. It lasts forever. You and I hardly even understand that. We've never been in something that lasts forever. We don't even wrap our minds around something that it doesn't have an end. It just goes and goes and goes. You know, another one that somebody, I don't remember who was preaching this when I heard it, but if you were to imagine the earth as a metal ball, the hardest known metal to man, and you were to imagine that there was an ant that was walking around the equator of the ball the size of the earth, how long it would take for that ant to walk all the way around one time. And then how long it would take for that ant to keep walking and keep walking and to grind a tiny little groove in that metal ball. And then to keep walking and keep walking and not only grind a groove, but grind an inch thick groove and then a foot thick. How many circulations would the ant have to go through to cut all the way through a ball the size of the earth that is made out of the hardest metal anybody knows. And then you haven't even spent the first second of eternity. It's not Kyle Buss teaching on eternity. That's a statement directly from the mouth of love himself. Because hell is a spiritual reality. Now here's what you need to understand about it. You need to go back to our reading tonight. You need to listen close to what Jesus said in Matthew 23, verses 37 and 39. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you heard him say, How long I've wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But then what is the next statement? But you would not. I debated a guy by the name of Dan Barker in 2009. 2009, Dan Barker made a statement that you're almost scared, you're almost frightened to repeat. Dan Barker says there's no God. The God of the Bible doesn't exist. And he was talking about this idea of hell. And he said, if I die and I meet a being who created a place like hell, then I would tell him to go there. Now let me take you to a passage of Scripture that you need to really understand in discussion of the judgment of God. I want you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. And in Hebrews chapter 10, 
You're going to read about how God views judgment. Look in verse 28 of chapter 10. Now, remember, just incidentally, as I was looking at this verse, do you remember the very first chapter of Hebrews where it says, God in various times and different ways spoke to our fathers in times past by the prophets, but now he speaks to us by his son? Whose message is the book of Hebrews? Jesus' message. I want you to listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Okay, you understand that. Somebody's caught committing adultery and a person brings them before the court. They have two or three witnesses that are able to testify to the fact. Okay, die without mercy. They get stoned immediately. Now, lots of us look at that and say, yeah, but I mean the New Testament, the New Covenant, it's a much more loving covenant. It's not that serious. Okay, now listen to the context. If people in the Old Testament die without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, look at verse 29. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose he will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For you, we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oh, if you thought that getting stoned in the Old Testament based on two or three witnesses, was bad? Do you know what's going to happen to a person who doesn't obey the new covenant? But now I want you to listen close. I want you to listen close to what he's saying. A person who tramples the blood of the covenant under his feet. Now here's the picture. You've got the broad way. It's on this left side where the goats are going. You've got the narrow way that few are found. But Jesus said, I've never wanted you to go the broad way. Never. I have tried everything I know to get you on the narrow side. And do you know what you will have to do? To go to hell. Here's how much God loves you. He's going to let you choose it if, like Dan Barker, you want to. He's going to let you. But he has, in a literal, physical, and spiritual sense, said, you will go to hell over my dead body. And he has put the cross of Christ in the middle of the broad road and said, if you go to hell, you have to trample over this person who died for your sins. You have to step on him. Now folks, a person who would look Jesus, their Savior and sacrifice in the eye and say, I don't care and stomp on Christ on their way to hell. What else can God do? He won't force you to do right. In fact, there's only one way that any person will ever feel the judgment of God. Only one way. If that person chooses that. So tonight it's to you. Jesus said, I've always just wanted people to be saved. 
That's all I've ever wanted. But the people that aren't saved, it's because they haven't chosen me. I'm coming back in flaming fire to take vengeance on those who know not God and who obey not the gospel. Obeying the gospel, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Bible explains to us very clearly what the gospel is. It says it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, verses 1 through 3. Now, how in the world do you obey the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? When you hear the story of Jesus, you believe with all your heart, you die to yourself and repent of your sins, confessing Jesus as the Son of God, and then you die to yourself, you are buried with Christ in baptism, and you come up out of that watery grave, the Bible explains, as a new creature. You obey the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by dying to yourself, being buried in water baptism, and coming out as a new creature. If you're old enough to understand what I'm saying, and you haven't done that yet, give God the glory that you've still got time. But there's a spiritual reality, and you've got a choice to make. What will you choose as we stand and as we sing?